The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is helping the world's businesses and people harness the power of the sun. It develops cutting-edge technology for residential, commercial, and large-scale solar generation. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power designs and manufactures the 1500 volt Mark I energy storage system, which offers best in class safety features, market leading energy density, and low installation and operations costs. Core Power's modules are now on the market. Find out more at corepower.com, K O R E power.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. What does it mean when the world's largest generator of wind and solar outpaces the most iconic oil company in market value? We're talking about Next Era Energy and ExxonMobil. Plus, reporters get their hands on documents showing that as other companies ramp down their emissions, ExxonMobil plans to ramp up. Is this the planet's most recalcitrant company? Then the slow de-emphasis on hydrocarbons will change global political power, but do we really know how yet? And last, decarbonizing heavy industry. A lot of our manufacturing relies on very high heat. Are there ways to reach those temperatures cleanly? And what's going on in the steel market? Jigger Shaw's with me as usual. He's there in Bethesda, Maryland. Hi, Jigger. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Are you avoiding the flies? Everyone keeps talking about this fly uh, uh, from the vice presidential debate. I did not watch the debate last night, so... It landed on his head. My friend Rena Ninen, who used to be at CBS, said, it depends on where you stand. Was it pretty fly for a white guy, or I don't want no fly guy? <laughs> we got a text from Catherine this morning saying that the fly has its own podcast, so... <laughs> More competition in the podcast space. Catherine is unfortunately not here with us, but joining us instead, coming back to the show, is Dr. Melissa Lott. Melissa is a senior research scholar at the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, and it is so good to have you back. Hi, Melissa. Hey, guys. Good to see you. And uh, Catherine, look forward to hearing you when you get back on next week. Did you watch the debate last night? I plan to watch the highlights this morning. <laughs> but no, but I did see the fly. The fly's on Twitter. I mean, the fly's got a whole presence much bigger than mine. So, <laughs> way to go. Well, the New York Times is a good uh, five minute and 42 second, I think, like summary video. That sounds perfect. That sounds like a great length. <laughs> so there were two major headlines that caught our attention this week. NextEra Energy, the huge utility holding company that is perhaps the world's largest generator of renewable energy from the wind and sun, has overtaken ExxonMobil, the world's most iconic oil company by market capitalization. That's at least as of this recording. NextEra owns Florida Power and Light and Gulf Power, among many other utilities. ExxonMobil is ExxonMobil at one time, the largest publicly held oil and gas company in the world, but it has lost half its share value this year. Meanwhile, Kevin Crowley and Akshat Rathi, two reporters at Bloomberg News, have obtained leaked internal documents from ExxonMobil, showing it intends to increase carbon emissions 17% by 2025, at a time when emissions obviously need to be on the steepest possible path downward to preserve our climate. Pretty brazen. So let's go to the market cap story, which is uh, making the rounds in energy circles. It got a lot of attention. 
Uh, Jigger, what do you make of this story and framing? Is it a big deal that a company like Nextera surpassed ExxonMobil in market cap? Well, I think it's it's useful to understand how fast Exxon has fallen. I mean, Exxon was the world's most valuable company seven years ago. So not 17 years ago or 27 years ago. Seven years ago, it was worth more than Google and Apple and Amazon and Nextera, right? And I think the way to think about it is that ExxonMobil and all other companies, supposedly, I'm not sure anymore, are basically valued at all of their future profits, you know, uh, discounted back at a reasonable discount rate based on the risk of the stock, right? And when you think about where ExxonMobil is going, shareholders basically believe that their future profits are at risk, right? That people don't think that they will be able to maintain those profits over time. And they haven't shown a new growth plan to shareholders, whether it's around investments in clean energy or investments in carbon sequestration or whatever it is, to convince them that that trajectory will get better. And so they were you know, rewarded with a 60% drop in market cap and, um, you know, and, and one that continues to fall, right? It was only like five, six years ago, I guess it was around six years ago that, ex, that Warren Buffett owned a bunch of ExxonMobil stock, right? Because he thought it was going places. So I think that it's really a tale of two stories, right? Nextera, on the other hand, has less profits than ExxonMobil has today, to be clear. But shareholders believe that their engine that buys wind and solar projects is an engine that actually has real staying power and can originate more solar and wind projects every year and make the company bigger and bigger and bigger. And now, of course, they're getting into batteries and lots of other adjacencies. Um, But they believe in the growth of their asset base and their proprietary nature by which they, they acquire those assets. Melissa, how do you think about the framing of this story? Because these are companies at very different scales still. Yeah, I mean, these are very different scaled companies. ExxonMobil, I think, I was trying to find their most recent employee counts, and they're looking at 75,000 workers, 260 plus billion in revenues, and 14 billion in profits, right? Nextera, conversely, is about 14,000 employees. I mean, it's a lot smaller. 19 billion in revenues and just under 4 billion in profits. So this is what Jigger was saying. So these are very different scales, but I think it's it's a sign of where things are turning and turning more quickly than we might have thought they would or certainly than ExxonMobil I assume thought they would, um, you know, in the past, in the past few years. And I don't think this is an isolated type of situation. I mean, you look at these companies, you look at Nextera, which I, you know, I would like to pull the thread of, is Nextera a renewables company or is it something <laughs> more than that? <laughs> it's a shiny headline, but there we go. Um, but when you look at Nextera and you look at how they're investing and you look at how we're using electricity in the midst of this pandemic, but more broadly, I get why people are more optimistic about the amount of money they'll be able to make and also the consistency of being able to make that money. Let's pull that thread right now. Is Nextera a renewable energy company, Jigger? <laughs> or Melissa, why don't you start since you raised it? I'm going to say it real short and sweet. Nextera is not just a renewables company. Both its wholesale power generation and utilities are still dependent on fossil fuels. Last time I checked, 
that's actually the majority of the business. But maybe my data are wrong. So jigger. Melissa, we need a good headline. You know, clickbait <laughs> is a very real thing. No, so. and, and I love the renewables. I love the investments in it. That's great. Going, you know, to zero carbon power is fantastic. And we need renewables in that mix. Um, but to say that it's doing all of this, you know, 19 billion in revenues and 4 billion in profits just off of wind and solar farms that admittedly have lovely, nice long term contracts coming with them. But that's not the full story. Um, I said I'd keep it short, though. So Jigger, where did I go wrong on that one? What do you want to poke at? <laughs> well, I don't know that you've got it wrong. I mean, look, I think that the the story of these kinds of companies is you basically participate in highly anti-competitive practices at home yep. and benefit from competition all around the country. Yep. And so you make sure that nobody can come into your backyard, but that you can go into everyone else's backyard, right? And that is that is the clickbait headline for you, Stephen Lacey. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just answer this clearly, since a lot of people on social media are talking about this in very stark ways. There's a lot of nuance to it. But is this a sign of the clean energy transition? I mean, is this a sign of much bigger things to come? Jigger, what do you think? Well, I definitely think that COVID has made it very clear to people that we have reached peak oil, right? BP Energy has said that we've reached peak oil. I mean, some people believe them, some peak people production. don't, but they're... Uh, well, I mean... It, no, it sorry, depends on, demand. Uh, it sorry, depends sorry. on where you sit. There's a lot of people who believe that we're at peak production just because at current oil prices, um, there are many rigs in the United States that are on the sidelines and so that you can't profitably exploit uh, more uh, fracking. Um, and there's a lot of people who believe we're at peak demand. Um, you know, and Atul Ari, obviously, who's head of research at um, IHS Market, has said that for years. Um, and so I think that there are, advocates for peak on both sides. But either way, they both they both are postulating that 2019 was um the peak year, right? And if you're if you're claiming the peak, regardless of whether it's true or not, from such um esteemed sources of information, you can imagine that stockholders are going to say, well, hell, why am I owning a stock of a declining business or a declining sector? Melissa, what is the overall sign you are seeing from this? I mean, I think Jigger touched on the trends that have led to this. You've got this loss in value for Exxon and this rapid growth for NextEra. Um, and for me, this is a sign of the things that are coming. So, you know, exactly on point, if you're going to see some kind of peak demand, you know, we're, we're not going to have this future where oil and gas demand is just going to be increasing forever. That's that's not what people are talking about. And I don't think that's what we reasonably assume. And if you're in that position and you've got ExxonMobil, the things that they're putting out there, whether it's this, you know, expectation of emissions increasing or, you know, many other things, I'm not going to have a lot of confidence that they're going to be in a good position moving forward. And in the whole world of large oil and gas producers, they're not in a confidently, I don't know, advantageous position to be producing the lowest cost, highest quality, you know, product in the future. And if you get a tightening market, that's not great. On the flip side of it, we've got rapidly increasing demand for electricity that's from zero carbon sources. And Nextera is the world's largest solar wind power generator. Like, that's a pretty good sign. They're also investing, and I think we spoke about this briefly in August when I was here visiting when Catherine was on vacation. Um, but they're also looking at, okay, how do we get into hydrogen? How do we do these other things that we're going to need to have in place in the future in this zero carbon economy? So they're looking to the future. ExxonMobil, I mean, maybe I missed it, 
but I haven't seen them signaling that they're really thinking about where they're going to be in the zero carbon future, or at least they're not making decisions that clearly say they're going to invest in that future and their position in it. And that brings us to two related stories to these companies. One is the leaked documents showing ExxonMobil plans to significantly increase emissions, or at least its plan before the pandemic was to significantly increase emissions. And also NextEra is planning to make a bid for, is considering a bid for Duke Energy. So let's actually just talk about NextEra's potential bid for Duke and if that would accelerate clean energy within a mega utility like Duke in the Southeast. Jigger, what do you make of NextEra and Duke? What is the state of play there and what are the implications? Yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings, right? But the thing is, is that I think Duke has been uniquely terribly run for over a decade, right? Probably the worst run utility company next to Pacific Gas and Electric, right? You're talking about a utility that that routinely spills coal fly ash into waterways and has never owned up to it and figured out how to solve it. Instead, they basically use all sorts of dark money tactics, et cetera, to try to postpone the day when they actually have to figure out how to clean this stuff up. You've got a CEO who basically hates distributed energy resources and has made it public that they hate distributed energy resources, while Duke Energy owns REC Solar, which is pursuing distributed energy resources across the country, right? So they're denying their own people access to technology while people around the country, like, you know, are, um, you know, like developing solar projects with their own division, right? And it's so it's one of those things where, and then even before Lynn Good was CEO, I mean, Jim Rogers, you know, um, also used to say that, you know, if renewable energy was above 3% market share in North Carolina, we would have rolling blackouts, right? Um, And so it would be great to put that entire past behind them by having someone like NextEra own them and actually just wiping the slate clean and starting over. Um, Like, it's just, it's so sad because North Carolina should be a beacon of what is possible, right? You're talking about enormous amounts of solar that's been installed, enormous amount of um, job creation, economic development, and all that stuff. But when you think about Progress Energy, which spawned, you know, Bill Johnson, who went to TVA and then PG&E, who has his own mess to clean up. And then when you think about, like, Duke's legacy, it'd be nice to just get all that behind us. To In defense of Duke, I think that Duke has been very clearly antagonistic toward distributed energy. That is all correct. And um, it has been highly politically engaged in, you know, combating that part of the industry. But Duke has invested in, you know, large scale battery systems, a lot of utility scale renewable energy projects. It's not like it's done nothing. And it has increased None of those that investments. Covers... And so building, you know, next era could build on that. It's it's not like it's coming into a utility that, you know, like, like, you know, it's some other utilities like Southern Company, which have done far less, you know, Duke has a, a record to build on. You're talking about one of the worst economic and environmental justice records in the country. The number of people who are negatively impacted through clean water issues and just other health-related issues that Duke is directly responsible for and has never owned up to. It's unconscionable. In this day and age, when we're thinking about the Green New Deal and we're thinking about just how our energy choices have impacted the least among us in terms of economics— I mean, it's just sad. It's just sad. And no amount of battery storage or solar or wind can paper that over. That's not untrue. 
But uh, big corporations are big corporations, and they try to skate by with as little responsibility as possible. And I don't think a next era takeover of Duke would necessarily change that equation dramatically. But if we just look at a purely renewable energy perspective, Duke does have a track record to build on. And so uh, if you're thinking about a mega renewable energy developer like Nextera pairing with Duke Energy, there is some crossover. So, yeah, I mean, a far bigger conversation. I do want to talk about ExxonMobil really quickly and their plans to increase emissions. Um, as we said, there is this Bloomberg investigation unveiling documents showing that ExxonMobil plans to substantially increase its uh, emissions over the next five years. And this is in direct contrast to many of the other oil majors, particularly European oil majors that are you know, claiming that they're going all in on the energy transition and have announced goals to reduce their own internal carbon emissions and to attempt to reduce emissions from their products out in the world. So the question is, is ExxonMobil standing alone on this? Melissa, what is your reaction to this plan, pre-pandemic plan, I should say? I mean, I don't think they're standing alone. I think that they very publicly are standing in a place that, I mean, if I was an investor... I'm like, well, that's a lot of risk. I'm like, you're planning for not the future that we're working towards. And that if you look at trends, if you look at drops in costs of renewables, if you look at, you know, adoption of electric vehicles, I mean, there's so many, to me, huge flags blinking saying, this is not the direction we're going in. Increasing emissions, that's that's big risk. So I don't I, I don't think they're alone. I would like actually I know they're not alone because I know those types of conversations are still happening in some companies. But for someone so big, it's I, I would like to be a fly on the wall and to listen to those conversations and understand how they are a, a fly on the head um, of the executive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to be a fly on the head of the guy. I mean, look, I this is what we said back in August, right? Which was that that Exxon and Chevron are likely to say that they are the world's best risk managers in oil, which I don't believe, but they believe. And so that they believe that if BP and Shell are selling, that they're likely buying, right? CNBC did a big report, which I think they released last week, that they said roughly $100 billion of assets would trade hands in the next couple of years in the oil and gas sector. And so there will be some people buying and some people selling. And Exxon saying that they they want to be buying. And I get that because, I mean, they're looking and and it's a Chatham House rule kind of conversation. I was speaking to a well-known CEO of one of these types of companies. And he's like, yeah, so here's the deal. I think I've got one more cycle to make a heck of a lot of money. And I'm going to make a lot of money in that cycle. And then I'm going to sell everything off. But I think that when I do my my calculations, it makes sense to write out that cycle and make a ton of profit. And I'm like, well, I mean, I get you're driven by those economics and you want to, you know, get that last, last bit of juice out of that orange. OK, you know, that's that's where his priorities are. Um, but I, I don't see how it's setting you, set you up for long term success. And I certainly think it's going to put you behind a lot of other companies. And we spoke about in August the difference, and Stephen, you alluded to it, the difference between what we're seeing in terms of social license and the perception of that between European-based companies, American-based companies. And I think you're seeing this just continuing to play out. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's the part that's really missing, right? Is it? I'm actually not as offended by their emissions increase. It's, you know, look, some folks are going to be buyers of 
oil assets and some are going to be sellers of oil assets. I think that the world has not stopped using oil. So there is a need for oil. And even Saudi Aramco is going to be investing billions of dollars to make sure that they continue to produce oil. So like, Yep. So it, the emissions increase is not what offends me. I think what offends me is that they don't actually have a parallel plan that they're discussing publicly around carbon sequestration and storage or hydrogen or industrial heat or like there's lots of areas that require the 75,000 um, you know, people who are really the best and brightest that the energy industry has to offer that work at ExxonMobil that could be doing better things. I mean, Exxon's a big investor, for instance, in fuel cell energy and figuring out how to use uh, solid oxide fuel cells as um, sequestration as well as, um, you know, producing fuel cells, right? They're, they're doing a lot of really great research, but they haven't actually said that they are going to be scaling up biofuels or, or whatever it is that they could be doing that are the next great engineering challenges uh, to match um, their increase in emissions. And I'll pull two quick threads on that. You know, one, it goes back to this in the near term, and this is something that COVID has shown us very clearly. Um, you know, we're looking at having reduced emissions this year because of pretty dramatic shifts in demand patterns. Fine, but nothing structural has changed. So you said, Jigger, you know, like we're getting back in our cars. My car has not changed. My car is still fossil fuel powered. There we are. So until those structural things change, there's room and there's a need in the short term for production, for investment in production. And uh, the rough rule of thumb when I'm talking to the folks who look at upstream investments in oil and gas at the Center on Global Energy Policies, they're like, yeah, we'll invest now for the next 10 years. And I'm like, oh, if I think about it that way, yeah, I'd, I would invest now in these things because until those structural things change, hmm, you know, of course, I'm going to want to position myself to make some money there. The second thing is... Um, when it comes to ExxonMobil and their plans, or at least what we are aware of in their plans, it seems like they're maybe falling into this trap of thinking of the energy transition as like binary steps, like here's where we are today, and then we'll be at net zero at some point, but not realizing, okay, how I position myself in that transition matters a ton in terms of how successful I'm going to be, and the trade-offs that are inherent in waiting a bit. At least I don't see them thinking about those parts of the transition or acting on them. Well, coming up, how this factors into the global energy order. First, a quick word about our sponsors. We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is building inverters for solar and storage for deployment all around the world. Their products seamlessly integrate into existing grids in accordance with all standards of certification. SunGrow PV inverters are operating at 99% efficiency, and their components are easy to set up. You can just complete setup via the website or app, uh, which utilizes a fuse-free design and smart string current monitoring. The results are higher energy yield and more income for your project. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. In fact, Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S. owned by an American company. And once operational, the 1 million square foot facility will have 12 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. Core Power's newly commissioned 2 gigawatt hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing. You can get your hands on those products at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. 
Energy Twitter was on fire this week about an article by Jason Bordoff, the founding director of the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, where, coincidentally, Melissa is a senior research scholar. Uh, Jason is a former advisor to President Obama. Uh, Jason's article looks at geopolitical winners and losers as a result of the decline of oil and ascendance of clean power over time. He posits that many people are wrong if they expect the House of Saud or Russia to fade anytime soon. He writes that global climate agreements will fail if politicians don't accurately assess the real risks of how this transition will play out. It's a slightly contrarian take on the conventional wisdom about the geopolitics of the transition. So, Melissa, what is Jason arguing here? Yeah, so the big takeaway for me from this piece is probably the concept that if we fail to acknowledge the geopolitics of the transition, like the whole pathway to net zero, then we're going to slow down our progress on actually reducing emissions or our progress on getting to net zero. So in this, we've got to avoid this temptation to oversimplify and assume like straight lines between now and net zero, like Saudi fails, China wins, these type of broad statements. There's too many nuances that are too important to actually supporting our progress, um, that if we do that, you know, we're going to slow ourselves down. So I'll kind of pick on three points um, just to give a couple of threads to start with. So, you know, point one, it's a transition. Too often we're focusing on what it's going to look like in 2050 and assuming that we can just skip to the end. And we're actually using conventional wisdom, as it were, our own experiences, which is, you know, very normal to say, oh, well, this is how things will work out. Um, it's a process that's going to impact global geopolitics and not just in the way we think. So Jason pulls on a couple of different threads within this about demand peaks and lowest cost producers and how Saudi, UAE, Kuwait, et cetera, will be actually positioned in terms of being able to, to sell their supplies at a profit. This explains a lot of why we see, you know, Saudi continuing to invest like they think there's going to be demand for their product. So, of course, they're going to set themselves up for that. Um, the second thing I'll say is this. Uh, my summary of it is like electrostates are not the same as petrostates. Like, full stop. And we can dig into that a little bit more. Well, let's dig uh, into it right now. So so okay. electrostates are not petrostates because a petrostate could cut off supplies of oil and gas and it would have an immediate impact in a country that relies on that supply. And if a country like China, for example, cuts off battery supply or cuts off supply to rare earth materials, Supply chains will shift. Uh, the impact could take months or years to play out. So they're just we're talking about very different time scales too, which which factors into the power that these countries have. Yep, one hundred percent. So this is the thing where once we've imported that panel or brought that lithium or cobalt into our control, as it were, so into the United States, you know, in, in this case, even if China says no more panels, I'm not going to send you any more. They're not taking away the panels we already have on the ground. So those immediate effects of like cutting off a supply of oil or if you look at Russia and southeastern Europe in 2006 and 2009 and the winter there, you know, cutting off gas deliveries, you're not going to see that immediate effect. And what that does is it gives us time to adapt. So if any country were to say, you know, we are the number one manufacturer of a clean tech, you know, technology, we're no longer going to send it to you there's time for us to adjust and build up capacity in other parts of the world or in our own country. Um, so this applies to, as you said, like the actual finished products and the raw materials for it. Like we have time to adapt. The other thing that I'll say is that that doesn't mean that there are not increased risks in some other areas of increasingly electrifying and depending on electricity in the case that, you know, Jason pushes out in his in his piece. 
As we go to an increasingly electrified economy, I mean, we have other risks. So we're increasingly electrified, interconnected, dependent on these resources. You know, we're thinking about cybersecurity in different ways. And its reach of let's having someone, you know, hack into the power grid being much more widespread than right now. I mean, right now, the power grid goes down. My car still runs for a long period of time. In the future, these balances change. Jigger, what is your takeaway from Jason's thesis? Well, I mean, Jason and I have, you know, known each other for a long time and um, have been on opposite side of debates for a while. I, I, I think that part of this is um, he's absolutely right in the piece. So first, I think everyone should read the piece. I think the second piece, though. What do you think he's right about that that like petro states are not going to be in the decline we think they are? Or what do you think he's right about? So I don't think that the substance of what he's saying is is like broad and sort of well-defined in the piece. I think what he's mostly saying is this is going to play out differently than conventional wisdom. Right. And that part I think he's right about. I think, you know, my wife worked at the State Department for a long time, was the chief negotiator for the Fifth Committee at the UN. So, you know, I know some of that from her, which is that I think that in general, clean energy experts don't think like foreign policy experts, but they like sort of play one on TV and it really it really causes us to make really bad decisions. So for instance, we say, you know, of course Pakistan should do solar and not coal from China. And and then that's it. That's like the the total like extent of our analysis, right? Like in general, I'd say clean energy developers don't think through, well, why would Pakistan want to align themselves to, with China after the Obama administration basically said that they were liars and they were hiding Osama bin Laden? Like, why would they actually want to ingratiate themselves with Russia? What are they offering? Right? How does that work? Right? How does this like play into the money that I'm spending on developing a clean energy project there? Should I invest $5 million on developing a Pakistan solar program when they're, you know, so in bed with China and Russia right now, right? Like, I just think that, like, when you think through how different governments are aligning with different powers within the world and and what resources those powers are pushing them to use, right? Remember, Hillary Clinton was pushing liquefied natural gas throughout Latin America and other places, right? And during her first administration, and many of us were saying, why the hell would she be doing that, Right. And I think instead of actually genuinely trying to listen and understand why she would be doing that, we all were just like, you know, damn her for pushing gas, right? Why wouldn't she be pushing, you know, solar and wind? And I think that there, that as this, the clean energy industry becomes the behemoth that we believe it is, we actually need to become as smart on foreign policy as we currently are on tech, um, because our fortunes actually lie a lot in these government-to-government negotiations and not just the you know cost per kilowatt hour that our current technology has been able to achieve. I would spin it to the policy side of things, which says climate change agendas, climate change policies, and foreign policies are not separate and should not be treated separately. So a climate agenda, and I said this part already, but a climate agenda won't be robust if it doesn't acknowledge geopolitics. But foreign policy and the management of these geopolitical risks will be extremely weak 
if it doesn't acknowledge climate change and the varied impacts of the transition. And, you know, this is well beyond surface level. Okay, this area, you know, we'll see a heating climate uh, and we'll benefit from it versus this other area that will actually greatly suffer because of that. Um, You need to treat them together and understand the nuance in them. Yeah, I'll give you another example, right? So for instance, the EU has been pushing a hydrogen agenda in a big way. Mm-hmm. One of the big conversations has been, why don't you just produce hydrogen in Morocco or Algeria or some of these you know, states that are basically uh, on the Mediterranean that basically you could just pipe the hydrogen up to Germany and it would be way cheaper than producing it locally, right? There's a lot of conversations there, but it hasn't stopped, you know, 15, you know, hydrogen entrepreneurs from doing the math on a spreadsheet and saying, look, 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 it's 27% cheaper to do it this way than that way, right? (laughs) But the people that they're pitching are saying, wait a second, how close are we with Algeria? How close are we with Morocco? Do we really want our supply chain of molecules to come from there versus Russia? Like, I get the fact that we all dislike Russia, but... Nord Stream, you know, too, is something that we kind of understand. We've already thought through the politics and how the ownership stakes are going to work, et cetera, right? The same thing is true, by the way, with the big transmission line from Singapore to uh, Australia, where people are saying, hey, we're just going to use the Australian desert and create this huge solar farm. And then we're going to just transport the power to Singapore. No and there's deal. already a billionaire who's on on board, right? This is fantastic. Elon Musk style. And folks are saying, wait a second, does Singapore actually want that relationship with Australia? Does Australia want that relationship with Singapore? And I don't think that we actually feature those conversations in our podcast or in our decision on where to spend dollars. So another section of this is also uh, at the end of the energy transition, just as I've talked about how we need to focus on the transition, but let's get closer to the end. We are looking at interesting, more localized discussions. So if we have, let's just picture this net zero future where we've got increasingly electrified economies. I mean, the chances of, no offense to those who are into the worldwide super grid concept, it's super engineering neat and nerdy and I love it, but I don't see how it's going to happen. And I don't see why, you know, countries would go that direction. So a lot of things will become more localized because you will be supplying those electrons, you know, in your in your neighborhood, in your region, if not within your country, within just, you know, your neighbors and yourself. On the flip side, there are some interesting bits about, okay, what happens, though, with the power to X, power to fuels type of conversation? So hydrogen, ammonia, you know, what happens with shipments? Uh, what are we going to do in terms of, you know, shipping lane risk, you know, how is that going to develop over time? Is Australia going to be a big power and shift the overall balance in Southeast Asia and on trade by being that deliverer, maybe not of the direct electrons via cable, um, via, you know, a transmission line, but of turning it into fuels that then it ships all around? And what will that do to the overall balance? And Australia is just one example. Of course, there's you can look at the overlay of renewable energy resources and zero carbon investments, including nuclear, CCS, and you can see where different countries are positioning themselves in interesting ways to be the supplier of those things in the future. Can we just touch on one piece of this that Jason talks about related to pricing that is always kind of flummoxed to me? So as he points out, a lot of the petro states like Saudi Arabia or Russia may do just fine for a little while under the energy transition because if demand falls and prices fall, these countries have some of the lowest cost to produce oil and gas. So they'll probably be fine compared to you know countries or companies, for example, that you know have, have much higher costs. 
But if we think about how people talk about the energy transition, some people say, well, you know, high oil and gas prices are great because that raises the products like gasoline and people drive less and people buy electric cars. And so the downstream result is positive. But that also means high prices means that oil and gas companies have more incentive to go ramp up their tar sands production or to go deeper offshore and to get the more expensive oil. If you have low prices, the conventional wisdom is, you know, demand falls for clean energy products. But it also means that you take some of the dirtiest and hardest to get oil off the table. So Jason talks about this in terms of geopolitics, but there's a lot going on here in terms of pricing that is always kind of flummoxed me when you think about like, what is the impact on net? <laughs> Any comments on that? Um, so two things. One, I'm having flashbacks to my classes at UT Austin in economics, looking at supply and demand curves and how they change over time. But the second thing that I'm thinking about and that you know flashes through my brain is it's really tempting to think that we tap into a big oil and gas field and like production just keeps going for a long, long, long time. Um, and if I'm remembering the numbers right, and I think Jason might have mentioned this in his piece, but the IEA estimates that production from existing oil fields declines at something like 8% per year. So you have to replace that eventually. Even if we meet Paris climate goals, we still need to have additional investment. And this is interesting for dynamics in the short term around supply and demand of what happens if we have an underinvestment cycle and we aren't replacing these things. And what does that do? And this could provide a clear story as to why Saudi Arabia is, you know, why they're investing. Yeah. And so the, remember earlier in the podcast, we talked about peak oil and peak demand and peak supply. This is why all of our listeners should actually go down the rabbit hole on this stuff. Chris Nelder does a great job of this as well. Um, and, and from the Energy Transition Podcast, I think. So from a peak demand standpoint, right, there are a lot of economic studies that have shown that we cannot afford $100 oil, right? The economy basically goes into recession as soon as you go to $100 oil. So like, so the world is not built for $100 oil. The second piece of it is when you th talk to Matt Simmons and those kind of folks who's now passed away, unfortunately, but he wrote um, uh, Twilight in the Desert back sort of in 2003. Um, he talked about these 8% decline curves. And we peaked in terms of conventional oil supply, which is what the Middle East has, um, in 2006. So we have not had any growth in conventional oil supply since then. Conventional oil supply is the stuff that we used to think about as oil, which was you just put a straw on the ground and you start sucking it out of the ground, right? That's the stuff that costs $8 a barrel, $9 a barrel to get out of the ground, not $40 a barrel or $50 a barrel out of fracking or $80 a barrel for Arctic drilling or, you know, $70 a barrel for tar sands, right? And so when you think about um, even deep sea drilling is $40 to $50 a barrel, right? So this is in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so, so when... When you think about these kinds of industries, when they go into decline, you can imagine the highest cost producers are the first ones to go out of business, right? And so what he's saying is that the Middle East is going to be the last folks to turn off the spigot because they have the lowest cost to lift the oil out of the ground and bring it to market, right? And so they are going to have that revenue coming in for the longest possible period of time. But I do think that if you want to like figure out all this stuff, there's actually no good way to give you a clear answer. Um, you really have to go down the rabbit hole with peak demand, peak supply, peak oil, conventional oil, unconventional oil. Like it gets kind of complicated. 
Good. So this has nothing to do with my feeble intellect then. It is actually complicated. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to pick up one thing that Jigger said just to take it a step further. So low cost producers. Yes. So also the lowest cost producers. So we're talking like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait. They are also some of the world's most efficient producers, frequently with lower life cycle emissions. So like this combination of low cost and low emissions, which if we do put a price on emissions in direct or indirect ways, I mean, the advantages just keep piling on. Well, excellent piece from Jason. We'll link to it in the show notes. And as a reminder, Jason is a co-host of the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast as well. Another great show that covers these topics in depth. So make sure to check that show out. Okay, third topic. Let's go to heavy industry. We're going to talk about the world's largest steel maker, the Fortune 500 ArcelorMittal. They just made a commitment to get to net zero carbon by 2050. On one hand, it's a big deal because steel is one of those super hard to decarbonize products that contribute significantly to climate change. On the other There are offsets and carbon sequestration built into that commitment, which doesn't mean direct emissions cuts. But we have to talk about steel because it's responsible for some 7% of all global carbon emissions. A lot of this carbon is a result... 7% of all global carbon emissions. A lot of this carbon is a result of the high heat used to melt stuff. Heavy industry uses very high heat, several thousand degrees Fahrenheit, to forge new materials. So how do we slash carbon emissions permanently in this space. Uh, Melissa, what do you make of this announcement from ArcelorMittal? What are they saying? I mean, effectively, if you look at the ArcelorMittal-like announcement, so this is the largest steel company in the world, and they just promised to achieve carbon neutrality company-wide by 2050. Um, And a significant part of their transition pathway appears to be focused on replacing coal with bioenergy and using carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration, so uh, CCUS. And this has followed a couple of other announcements. Um, I say SAB, but I don't think that's actually correct. The Swedish steel company, SSAB. Um, But they have already announced that they're saying, you know, we're already one of the world's most efficient steel companies. Now we're going to look at being fossil fuel free and actually producing fossil fuel free steel. Um, I think their target's by 2026. And I think this is a signal of what's going on in the industry. As you said, I mean, overall for industry, we're talking about around a third of global emissions and steel is 7% of global emissions. That's a big deal. Um, And so these companies are signaling that they have pathways and technologies that they can put in place to actually reduce their footprint and give them an advantage moving forward. They're seeing the writing on the wall. Jigger, what are the pathways that they're unveiling here or toying with? So I think it's important to note that, um, that coal is actually an essential ingredient in the current way that we make steel. Right. So it's not just you burn coal to produce electricity to produce steel. No, no. You actually use the coal directly to make steel. Right. You, you, when you look at um, how important steel is, you know, you start with iron oxide. Right. And then you need a reductant. Right. By definition, what a reductant does is take the oxygen away and then leaves you with actual iron. Right. And so the reductant that you use in most cases are carbon monoxide and you and you get that from coal right so like i just think that the notion that um this is like oh yeah like we just basically need to like slip in some hydrogen and we just figure it out right that's not how this works and so the other thing i would say is that the other people that we're talking about that use electric arc furnaces are not actually making 
iron, from iron oxide. Those people are generally taking recycled steel and actually returning it back into original form and then making it into new steel products, right? And so I think it's important to separate all these things. So if folks who are using electric arc furnaces, those are the announcements you've seen in like Arkansas and Missouri, where they're basically doing a corporate PPA and using wind and solar. Yes, that's super easy, right? For the folks who actually have to take stuff out of the ground and make iron, right? This new hybrid process that Sweden has announced that they're using is a new process, right? And I couldn't explain to you exactly how all of it works. I think that we should use a doctor to make that happen. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is a new process by which you actually get to the iron. And it is not something that is fully mature, that everyone is like, yes, let's move all of our steel to this new process immediately because we know exactly how it works. Dr. La? Absolutely. And for... You, you were called? <laughs> yeah, who defers to Dr. Julia Friedman very frequently for these things. No, this is this is great. So this is something when we get into the world of steel, you need to know kind of two technologies at, at the starting point, which is you talked about electric arc furnaces, and then you need to think about blast furnaces as well, which have a great name. But as you said, I mean, these are complicated systems. They also have long lifetimes. Um, this hybrid process that this Swedish company has announced is it's replacing the coking coal with fossil fuel electricity and hydrogen. I mean, this is this is really neat and tough stuff. So for anyone who's interested in going down the rabbit hole on this, there was this study that was put out in April. And I think the lead author on it was Jeffrey Rissman, who directs the inter- industry program at Energy Ovation. And there's a lot of other names on there that if you follow this at all, you're familiar with. So like Chris Bataille, who's an IPCC lead author um, on industrial decarbonization. Rebecca Dell from Climate Works, who's also a non-resident fellow at CJEP. And Dave Danielson, who used to be the former U.S. Assistant Secretary for ERE and is now over at Breakthrough. But it actually says, you know, here are the technologies we have have today, like here are the technologies that are in place, here are the technologies that we have today to replace them to actually drive down emissions in industry by 2070. The fact that it's 2070 shows you that these are difficult type of problems. No offense to the power sector where I spend a lot of my time, but we, we we know what to do there. Like we need political will and leadership, but like we know what to do. In industry, I mean, these are complex things. <laughs> As you said, Jigger, you're not just dealing with, you're dealing with two types of emissions. You're not just dealing with emissions from electricity or power or whatever it is to heat. You're actually dealing with chemical reactions and processes that produce emissions on their own. I mean, these are multi-step problems that you have, and you have to address all of it because just combustion is not all of emissions. And industry, again, has these multiple sources of it. So yeah, if anybody wants to nerd out on it, go through the three phases of transition in that paper um, by Rissman and his colleagues. It's really fascinating and lays it all out. Yeah, Melissa, I, I take a lot of offense here because, you know, I, I am, <laughs> uh, you know, I, just because we are so much better than the industrial people doesn't mean that we should be accused of doing something easy. no look i i think that's right and i think that the the other part of this which i think needs to be highlighted is yes there's a cost to converting to these new technologies so let's say they become fully mature everyone agrees that the the technology works and that the the end product is the same right the same quality brittle etc right so then then once you get to that point the conversion is expensive we know how to do that rebates, incentives, that kind of stuff, fine. But then the other question is, what is the 
ongoing operating costs of this, right? And that's the part that's harder to subsidize, right? It's it's not the thing about solar and wind that made them easier is that once you paid down the upfront cost, it was clear that the fuel cost was free, right? The challenge with this stuff is that the fuel cost is not free, right? Hydrogen today is uh, green hydrogen is in its infancy. The technology is quite mature, electrolyzer technology. But, you know, right now, most of our hydrogen comes from gray hydrogen sources, which are from fossil fuels. And so now if we want to do green hydrogen sources, which I'm hugely bullish on, um, you know, those costs are coming in at 6 or $7 a kilogram instead of $1.50 a kilogram. And so now those costs have to come down as well. So if you wanted to subsidize the whole industry to make this transition, you'd have to subsidize the upfront cost and the ongoing costs, which are super expensive. And so that's why we still need technology um, to come down in cost. And what the Swedes have done with the first hybrid plant is super important because it starts the deployment-led innovation cycle, which then means the second plant will be cheaper and the third plant will be cheaper, and we'll just keep going down the process until we can get to something that's cost-effective enough to make the full transition. Yeah, and there's an interesting thread on this around, because uh, these products, I mean, we don't just make steel to make steel because it's fun to look at. We make it to build things, right? And so if I'm remembering the number right, in the United States, about 50% of cement and 20% of steel purchases are actually done with public dollars. And so there's an interesting conversation with saying, if that much is purchased with public dollars, can that actually drive, and I'm not... Procurement is complicated in federal government. As someone who used to work in it, it's real complicated. But let's skip that for a second. If it's bought with public dollars, could that actually be a driver, federal, uh, state, cities, to actually get these green products into the system? And the thread on that and the finish on that is actually when you look at the cost of the finished product, the thing we actually care about, I don't care about the steel or cement, I care about the bridge or the building, it increases the price of those things, but really small, 1-2%. And when we have really tight government budgets, I'm not saying that's nothing, but it is an argument for saying, well, why don't we lead if that is the degree of impact that it would have? Yeah, I totally agree. And the other thing on that is it's totally within executive power. So you don't need congressional changes to say the federal government's going to procure from greener sources. Um, that can be done just through yes. implementing a social cost on carbon within the GSA uh, General Services Administration procurement process. There's lots of ways to to do that. Um, that is not, you know, asking for the U.S. Congress's permission. Though I would say we've got to include that cost and that externality cost because otherwise we're going to run up against this government procurement requirements to go for the lowest lowest cost supplier so that we're you know good stewards of public dollars. So there's nuances in there. It's complicated, but I agree with you. It's if we took it on, if we you know grabbed the bull by the horns and said, this is something we're going to do, it is something we can do. All right, we're in the home stretch of the show now. Let's finish up with some free electrons. Jigger, what are you reading about, thinking about? So I'm going to do a little log rolling. Um, I was quite pleased to see the Wall Street Journal actually promoted their tweet announcing our new deal this week with Altruist. And so... What deal um, is that? Tell me. Tell me more. As you know... You know, I started my career at Sun Edison doing CNI, but CNI is the one part of solar that has never really taken off in a big way. And so residential's taken off, utility scale solar is taken off, and CNI is still pretty strong. But that's true broadly, whether it's combined heat and power, energy efficiency. The Fortune 1000 in the industrial sector has actually lagged uh, utility scale solar and residential solar. And so 
We just backed Altris, which is uh, the former folks from Altinex who, you know, largely popularized the corporate PPAs. And they're going after all these folks who've made all these big pronouncements around energy efficiency and renewable energy and helping them with on-site work, right? So to try to figure out how they really get full access to, you know, fuel cells and combined heat and power and industrial efficiency and rooftop solar and LED lighting, et cetera. So we're backing them with $600 million and couldn't be happier. Um, it's, it's an area where we, I think everyone thinks it's happening, but it's actually still not happening at the same scale as residential and utility scale. Well, congrats on that announcement. Y'all are making continued big moves. Melissa, what is your free electron? Um, so this week, all week, and it's where I'll be going right after we uh, we finish recording, we've been doing the Aspen Columbia Energy Week. It's the first time that our center at Columbia University has partnered with the Aspen Institute for these Chatham House Rules Off the Records, just super cool discussions about where we're going and how do we accelerate the transition, et cetera. And in advance of uh, some interesting discussions about corporations and corporate actions, I finally sat down and I read... Google's 100%, 24-7, 365, matching decarbonization, zero energy paper. It's cool. You should read it. Um, you walk through. It's very and, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I will say, so I also had followed and I was digging deeper into Walmart's announcement, which was 100% renewables versus 100% you know, zero carbon, which is Google's announcement. And I just really appreciated the detail that, that Google put into it and also the conversations that I've had with folks over there about, okay, what does it mean when you're talking global operations? We mentioned Singapore earlier. <laughs> how on earth <laughs> do you figure out how to make sure that your operations are 100% zero carbon, 24-7, 365? Um, you have a lot of interesting conversations, I think is the sum up. So I finally sat down and read that and boy, I'm glad I, I did. Melissa, I thought we already solved this problem. It's a transmission line to Australia. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Absolutely. And the global grid, right, that we're going to build out, connecting everybody to everybody tomorrow. It's going to be super simple. Um, No, I just, I love seeing in this whole transition, you know, you've got push and pull going on right now. And that makes me really encouraged. I'm like, if you just have push or just have pull um, from demand and supply, that type of thing, we're not going to nearly, you know, move nearly as quickly to zero a zero carbon economy. And so these kind of ex- announcements get me just, I'm excited, like thrilled. It's great. And I love talking through it with those corporate partners and saying, okay, how are you thinking through it? Here's how we're thinking through it. It's nifty. Yeah, it's a really good paper. And Google has some of the uh, most ridiculously intelligent minds at work on that problem. Uh, and for those who haven't heard, we had an extensive discussion about Google and Walmart last week. So Good follow-up to that, Melissa. Uh, I got a little bit of self-promotion as well. Jigger, we're both log-rolling here. I try not to be too (laughs) self-promotional, but we have a ton of stuff going on right now. Uh, Over the last uh, six months, we've been extraordinarily busy on some projects that I'm very excited about, all of which are coming out basically within a few weeks of each other. So I want to alert people to them. So this week we're dropping a trailer for a new show that will be rolling out over the coming weeks and months with Dr. Leah Stokes and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. Catherine Wilkinson is uh, with Project Drawdown and Leah is with UC Santa Barbara and she's been on the podcast a number of times. And we are 
producing the show called A Matter of Degrees, uh, Stories for the Climate Curious. And we are uncovering the levers of power and the solutions in front of us related to the problem and potential pathway forward on climate change. So we're telling stories about um, activism and breakthrough moments now and throughout history when it comes to climate change. Um, we're looking at the solutions that we have ahead of us. We are talking about fossil fuel bailouts under the Trump administration. We are talking about racial justice and equity and why those are so central to the climate fight. Uh, we'll have some contributors who are looking at you know, the impact of coal and gas extraction on indigenous communities, um, looking at the impact of pollution on communities of color. It's a really cool project, and Leah and Catherine are fun, fun co-hosts, and we've been working with them for months on this project. So we have the trailer out for that this week, and I hope people can go check it out. You can listen to that anywhere you get podcasts, of course. So it's called A Matter of Degrees. Um, a very different project we've been working on is uh, a show with this VC firm General Catalyst. And it's with the CTO, the former CTO of Dropbox, the former CTO of VMware. And we're talking to technical executives, product developers, people who are developing really technical products um, about how they do what they do. So we talked to the VP of data infrastructure at Facebook, for example, about how they built their data centers from scratch. The former CTO of Uber on how they had to build their data centers and basically watch them crumble as demand uh, exploded for ride sharing. We talked to the chief product officer of Slack about how they're changing their products in a post-COVID world. The CTO of Intuit and, and the stakes after the PPP loan program and having to develop whole new products for small businesses. So it's all about kind of you know, I know we have a lot of technical people who listen to the show. It's really about how you create technical products. Um, so that's been a fun one to work on. And then we have another bigger project that I cannot talk about yet, but it will be released in early fall. So, or in, in the middle of fall. So anyway, we've been hard at work. Well, that's awesome. Leah's obviously amazing. Yeah. She does killer work. She just joined our visiting faculty program this term, along with uh, Dr. Catherine Wolfram. Um, and I... Thrilled, like fantastic. Like she's awesome and does incredible work. Love following it and reading it. Yeah. So that's a really, that's been such a joy to produce. And uh, we'll have a bunch of episodes before the election. Then we'll have some episodes after the election, some of which may change their focus depending on what happens. But uh, anyway, those are a matter of degrees and equivalent to magic. Anyway, that's about as self-promotional as I can get. I know it's very explicit, <laughs> but we're super excited about the work that we've been doing over the recent months. So. Uh, uh, Stephen, you're reminding me that I have about four manuscripts to get done this week <laughs> uh, to turn over. So with all these projects you list. So uh, I'll get back to that as soon as we stop. <laughs> well, thanks, Melissa, for joining us again. We really appreciate it. Of course. It's been fun. It's always good to see you guys. And uh, when you see Catherine next week, just send her my best. Great. We'll do. Uh, Jigger, always fun. Yep. I always look forward to it every week. Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are my usual co-hosts. Dr. Melissa Lott is our guest co-host. I am the executive producer. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixes the show. And thank you for listening. 
Uh, go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Go put the word out on social media or send a link to a friend or a colleague. We can be found anywhere you get your podcasts and you will find us right here with you next week as always. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.